Well, our family is in week three of a kitchen renovation project. Now, it's been long planned, so don't think we decided to start the project just when the third lockdown began. But when you're three weeks in, here's what we know. We're very familiar with our microwave, our crock pot, you know, the barbecue. We're thankful for those things. And if I've talked to some of you and emailed about it a little bit this week, here's what everyone says. We're in your midst of kitchen renovation. It will be worth it in the end. When you get to the end and the work is done, it will be good. And I agree with that. You don't just say, hey, let's go through a kitchen renovation for the fun of it, put everything back the way it was. No, it's the end goal that really matters. And that's sort of what our hearts are focused on. We're hoping three more weeks in that regard. But whether it's a kitchen renovation, and some of you know this feeling, you work in a job where it's more project-based, more task-based, where you can leave at the end of the day and you can say, here's what I did. Here's what I accomplished. If it was a, a mission term, you could say mission accomplished. And there's such a good feeling in being able to look back and say, I did this. I accomplished this. And in some ways, this is the importance of celebrating things. Because sometimes we can be so busy doing things, we forget that we've actually accomplished something. And so there's great value in just pausing and celebrating. And moms today, we pause and we celebrate you. And Harbor Moms and those that are watching, we trust that you're just going to have a wonderful day, that you'll receive the honor and the love that you are due. And and it's it's a good habit to put in place, that we pause and that we celebrate and that we honor. And in some ways, the work of motherhood is never done. There's never a mission accomplished, but in the other sense, we pause today and honor and mark that. So here's what, whether it's a kitchen renovation or it's something else, we like to be able to hear the words, mission accomplished, the work is done. We like the clarity of that. But sometimes then when we think of the Christian faith or we come into the church, what exactly is the work that we're doing? What is the mission that we are working on? Do we ever get to a point where things are completed? And we come to a passage of Scripture today where Paul ends it with these remarkable words. When I read them, I was sort of struck by what he was saying. And we've been on this journey with Paul. He comes to Christ, and now he's been sent out by a church in Antioch in Syria. He's gone on this long journey, and this today is the point at the end of the journey. As he's sailing back to Antioch, and let me just show you the verse, because it's extraordinary what him and Barnabas are saying to each other. It's Acts chapter 14. Look look at the verse. You'll see it on the screen. From Adelia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. Did you see that there? They're on the ship sailing back, and they had been committed out of this church for a work. And now on the way back, they're saying, for the work we had now completed. Luke records that on the way back, their job was done. They were high-fiving each other, mission accomplished. We have done the work that we set out to do. And I love that picture. I love the idea that Paul had a clear goal in mind. When he went out, we didn't see this at the start, he just was sent out for a work. But as he returns, he's got a clear goal in mind, and he's coming back, mission accomplished. I love the clarity that Paul has. And I think there's really something to learn from this in this regard even as we look at ourselves and as we look at our church. Do we have this kind of clarity? Do we know what the mission is, what the work is that we are supposed to complete? And we can say that individually, and we can look around harbor and ask ourselves that question well. So that's where we come today. 
This is absolutely essential to know what the work is we are called to complete. It's absolutely essential to know when the mission has been accomplished because we can mark it and we can celebrate. And so that's where we come today to look at. So that's the end of the story. The end of the story, we know how it ends. Paul says the mission is completed. Let's just go back and review to see how the story began. So we're back in Acts chapter 14. We're going to start in verse 19. We read these two verses last week, but I just want to comment on them on the big picture of what we're learning from Paul on this journey that he is on. Let me read the verses. Acts 14, verse 19. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. Now, those two verses have got so much in them, and I talked about it last week. There's so many questions that are unanswered in those two verses. But just for our summary today, let me mark the four city names that Paul mentions, or Luke mentions, that Paul has been to. First, we hear Antioch and Iconium. There's some opposition there. Paul had been to those cities previously, and he's been, he's been pushed out. He's been persecuted out of those cities. Now he's in Lystra, and you have read what's happened there and what happens, and now he moves on to a city named Derby. So we're seeing now four cities that compile Paul's missionary journey in this region of Galatia. Let me just put up the map real quickly so you can see it. You see there the purple star. This is Antioch in Syria, where Paul starts. He goes on the missionary journey to the Isles of Cyprus. He heads up to a second Antioch, Pisidian Antioch, and then down through those four cities. And now what we're going to see is he reverses course, goes back through the cities he's been to, and then comes back to Antioch. So that's, that's sort of the overview of where we are today. So let's go on to verse 21. Paul, he's been left for dead. They pray for him. Something happens. He's up and ready to go. On the next day, he heads to Derby. Verse 21 tells us what happened in Derby. Here's what it reads. They, meaning Paul and Barnabas, preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. I love this verse again. Here's what we see, Paul, in every city. And remember, these cities had never heard the name of Jesus, never heard the good news of the cross. And now Paul has gone to four cities, and every city is exactly the same strategy. He shows up and he tells them the good news about Jesus Christ. And what happens? What happens? The same thing happened in Derby as happened in the three of his pre-cities. I love this. And they won a large number of disciples. Don't you like that? Paul tells them the good news of Jesus, and many people decide to trust in Jesus and follow him. And we've seen this pattern. This is Paul's pattern. And what we normally see next is there is opposition to that, and then Paul is pushed on to the next city. That's sort of how we have seen this story playing out. Now, you may think at this point, if I hadn't told you earlier, that Paul's now gone to his fourth city. He's shared the good news of Jesus. Many people have believed, and he says, okay, good. Mission accomplished. Let's head home. Let's go down to the coast, get on the ship, get back to Antioch, and we'll say, many people trusted in Jesus. Mission is done. Let's celebrate. But that's not what Paul does. That's not what happens next. 
Luke now begins to give us a little more of the next stages, the next steps of Paul's ministry. It was here all along. Luke just hasn't showed us to us. But in these next verses, he's going to show us exactly what Paul is up to, his overarching mission and strategy. So let's go down to look at verse 21 and 22. Here's what it reads. Then Luke returned to Lystra, sorry, then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Now this is great. They've been persecuted in these three cities. Now what does Luke say? They return to those three cities. You know, Paul's just about lost his life in these places, but now they are heading back. Now, again, I don't want to discount Paul's bravery in this regard, but historians do tell us that there may have been a change of Roman leadership governing this region that maybe had a little heavier hand and didn't allow some of the mob rule that was happening previously and allowed Paul to go back to these three cities. But either way, He's brave and courageous to return. But when he goes back, notice he's not going back and doing evangelism. Now, certainly Paul would have still been sharing Jesus with people, but that's not what Luke highlights. Paul goes back and he's now doing something different in these cities. Yes, he's still sharing the message of Jesus, but Luke records where is his focus. His focus is on the disciples And he's doing and he's ministering to them. And so as we now look in and we see Paul now going back to wrap up his mission and the mission accomplished idea, here's what I would say. What is the work that Paul is trying to complete? What is his mission that he is accomplishing here? And it's simply this, disciples are being made. Or we could just say disciples made. Paul's going to get back to Antioch and he's going to say, I completed the work. I made disciples. That is the first thing of three things that we're going to see is his mission here as he heads out and he celebrates completing. Now, it's very interesting to note how this ministry of making disciples is going. What actually is Paul doing? And you see it there. There's two words in making these disciples. There's the strengthening and there's the encouraging. Let me just talk about those two first or one at a time. First, the strengthening is an ongoing idea. It's not like it just happens once and then they're strengthened and it's over, but it's a continual, ongoing process. And that word strengthening means this, to fix upon its basis, to fix firmly upon a base. That's the best way to understand this word strength. Think of it like a patio umbrella. And if you've got a patio and a patio umbrella, it's about this time of year we start to get those umbrellas out of the garage or out of the shed and get them out and set up and we put them in a base. Now, we wouldn't really say it like this, but if someone was to say to you, strengthen the patio umbrella, strengthen the umbrella, you would know what they mean. You, you, the umbrella is good enough itself. It's what it's standing in. It's what it's based in. And that is in the sense, that's the sense that Paul is using this word here, strengthen. When he goes back to these cities, he's strengthening the disciples. He's trying to get their base to be solid. And what do we know is the base that Paul is working on here? Well, it's the base of the Word of God. Paul is teaching them and, and, and pushing their roots deep down 
into the Word of God. His teaching ministry is based in the Word of God, and he wants to have them real strength and real depth there so their basis is secure. Maybe think back to Jesus' parable of the sower and the seed. Remember, Jesus was sowing out a lot of gospel seed, and he tells there's different soils that the seed landed in. The second soil was the soil where it was shallow, but the seeds grew up quickly. There was great joy and there was great excitement. Certainly, we've seen that here in these cities that Paul has been to. Many people have believed. But what Jesus tells in that parable is the seeds grew up quickly, the ground was, the soil was shallow, and their roots didn't go deep down. Well, what Paul is trying to do here is he's trying to say, we need to get the roots of these disciples deep into the Word of God so that when the scorching heat of life comes, they do not wither up. So the first way Paul is making disciples is simply by strengthening them. And then there's a second one. They go right together. They're they're inseparable. It's a companion idea to strengthening. It's encouraging. This word has real... uh, real oomph to it. It's like he's urging them. He's imploring them. He's exhorting them. Come on, let's come alongside. Let me come alongside you and let me urge you to obey Jesus. Let me implore you and exhort you to put into practice all that we are teaching. And as you bring these two ideas together, it's not that Paul was just teaching the Word of God in the idea that it was a theology class where they had to pass the test. No, he was teaching them the truth of the Word of God and then exhorting them to live it out. The truth was practical. He wanted it to affect their lives and he wanted them to live differently as a result of it. This might be like the third soil in that parable, the seed that grew up and then the weeds came and choked it out or the desires of this world and wealth. And Paul is saying, no, let me exhort you not to let the things of this world destroy the faith that is in you. But even as he says, persevere, remain true in the faith. Hardship is coming. Life is going to be hard. But Paul is exhorting them and encouraging them to obey Jesus, to keep practicing all the things they have taught. So there's a head idea here. There's a knowledge component, but it works out in their hands and in their lives, and that's what Paul is doing. So when Paul arrives back in Antioch, he says, mission accomplished. I've made disciples. I've invested in them. I've got their bases down in the Word of God, and they are living out the truth of the Word of God in these cities, in their lives, and in their families. I appreciate Paul here for his simplicity, right? Luke records, what did Paul do? He strengthened and encouraged the disciples. He was making disciples. Paul knew that he had one goal in mind, one mission to accomplish was to make disciples. And you might think, how did Paul get this? How did he become so clear on this goal? How, did he, how was he able to simplify it down? Well, this is exactly what Jesus told us to do in the Great Commission. Remember that? Jesus says, therefore, Go and make disciples of all nations. And if you look at what we've learned about Paul in this journey, he is doing exactly that. He's going to a place where people had never heard about Jesus, and he is making disciples there. I love the simplicity and the clarity that Paul has. And as we look at this, this idea of disciples made, it's really sort of the first main big idea. And then the other two points are going to build off of that. But Paul here is doing exactly what Jesus commanded him to do, which was to make disciples. 
But if we look into the next verse, then we see where this goes. Paul's just not only making disciples, but now he is organizing them. And let me just read it for you. It's verse 23. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church, and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. So now, on the basis of all of these new disciples, we see something else happening in each town. Elders are being appointed. It appears that Paul did not appoint these elders the first time he was there, but on the second time around, so there's been a little bit of time take place, and and you notice what this church is doing. They're praying, they're fasting. When they are gathering together, they are looking up. They are seeking the Lord. They're worshiping Him. They're praying together. They're going without food so they can seek the Lord for His wisdom and His direction. And out of that, we see that leaders are appointed, that elders are appointed. Now, we can read this, and it seems like it's happened in not, you know, it's not been a long time. In fact, scholars teach us that this whole journey that Paul was on was less than three years. And you remember, he went down to the island of Cyprus, had to go up the mountain pass to get up to these four cities. So at the very most, he's in this region for two years. It's probably much less than two years, but let's say two years at the very latest, at the very longest amount of time. And now after two years, Paul has gone to four cities And he is appointing elders in those cities. We sort of look in and in our minds we think, well, that can't be possible. He must have appointed unqualified people. And let me just speak to that for a moment. If you know anything about the Apostle Paul, you could never see him sitting in a room saying, well, we don't really have qualified people, so let's just throw anyone in. We'll see how it goes. You know, we know Paul wrote to Timothy and Titus, and he was intensely serious about the qualifications for leaders, for deacons, for elders in the church. And so there's no sense in our mind that Paul would have appointed unqualified people. So here's what we learn. In a not long period of time, that there have been many who have been raised up to be ready to have a level of spiritual maturity to care for others, and there have been some men that are raised up to serve as elders in just a not long period of time. And you want to look in here at the only God moment. There's an only God moment right here. I think Paul has arrived not less than two years ago into these places. And now there are elder-ready people in every city ready to say, I will take responsibility and care for the spiritual oversight of other people in this region. And that's the other thing Paul does. He appoints qualified people, but the other thing he does is, I'm just calling it, they were responsible. These elders were qualified and they were responsible. Look how Paul says it. And he committed them to the Lord. Well, who's the them? It's the elders, but it's also everyone the elders would be overseeing. It's it's all of them. It's the whole group that was praying and fasting together. It's like Paul comes to a point where he says, okay, guys, Here's your leaders, and I'm going to commit you all to the Lord, and I'm going to go back to Antioch, and I'm going to trust God with you and you with God for the health and the furtherance of this church and the ministry here. Something we can really learn and look in and appreciate about Paul just from a human perspective, from his leadership perspective, is right here. He is willing to hand off responsibility and authority for this local church. And we know that responsibility is the great mature of persons. And Paul is giving them all the responsibility of this church. In fact, he gets back to Antioch and he says, the work is done. 
I've appointed leaders, and I've committed them to God, and we will trust them in the hands of God. So that's the second thing Paul does. The first idea, disciples are made. The second idea, elders are appointed. And then there's a third thing, and Luke almost slips it in here. It happens so fast, it's in the same verse. You hardly see it, but here's what Luke says. He appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting. But it's that idea of he appointed elders in every church, in each church in the cities. So it's like Luke is saying there were churches there, but there was not leadership. So Paul returned to these cities, to the churches, and now was trying to further organize them. So this is interesting. Luke has not told us this before. But when Paul was in all of these cities proclaiming the gospel and see where we were seeing many people believe, what else was he doing? He almost immediately was forming these new believers into little communities, into little churches. He wasn't just saying, okay, trust Christ, say a prayer, and we'll see you later. He was bringing them together and forming these little churches Now, because when he returns, the churches are there, they just don't have leaders in them. And and remember with Paul, he was probably doing this almost immediately. Why? Because he doesn't know when he's going to get kicked out of these cities. He doesn't know when persecution is going to come. In fact, there was no plan. You know, we'll have persecution in week 14, and then we'll have completed the church curriculum, and then I'll leave. No, these events happen almost at the spur of a moment, and Paul has to leave the next day. And so when he has to leave the next day, what he's leaving behind is to some degree a functioning church here, or at least a community of people together. And so here's what I want to note. Here's what I want to note, the third thing. Disciples have been made. Elders have been appointed, and now churches have been established. This is the third part of Paul's mission. They each build on each other. But certainly we would say Paul is going home saying, I've completed the work. There are churches that are established in this region. And this really is the only God moment. I think two years ago, Paul shows up. No one believes in Jesus. No one's heard of Jesus. And now less than two years later, Paul is heading home. And at least in four cities... There are churches with disciples who are strong in their faith. They're organized with elders and with a leadership structure, and the churches are firm and established. And all of this has happened in the midst of significant persecution. This has not been easy sailing. These have been tough cities where they have fought opposition and persecution and mob rule and all sorts of things. But in the midst of that, God has birthed and established these churches And what I love about this is the disciples in these churches, I think they're quite committed. They're quite serious. One, they're showing up regularly to be strengthened and encouraged. They're coming together for fasting and prayer. We know they faced great opposition. And so I love to see their energy and their fervor, their motivation and their commitment to Christ. And that's what God has done in less than two years in this region. Now, you might step back and you might think, well, how did it go for these churches? This seems really quick. You know, could could these churches really be established? Could they really hold on? Does God really do these sorts of things? And if you know the Bible, we don't have a letter to the church in Derby, you know, to the Derbites. That would be a nice group. We'd like to hear about them. Or the church in Lystra, I guess you'd call them the Lystronians. That would be a nice book in the Bible. And Paul could talk about all that happened there. We don't have a letter specifically to any one of these churches. But here's what we do have. When Paul returns to Antioch, these churches are on his heart. 
And so he writes them all one letter. He writes them all one that they would have passed around through the region, and the region is called Galatia. And so we have a book in the Bible. It's the first book that Paul writes. It's the book of Galatians. And when Paul writes that, he writes it to Derby. He writes it to Lystra. Remember last week, Lois and Eunice and Timothy and the lame man. He writes that to Iconium and to Pisidian Antioch, to the believers there. He writes it to these elders he just would have appointed in these cities and these churches he just would have fasted and prayed with. He writes to them, and we can read that book and get a window into some of the things that were happening in these churches. They're still there. They're struggling with the gospel, trying to figure it out. There's been some attacks, as we know, in the book of Galatians, but we can read and get some insight. And then next week, Paul goes back to Antioch. He's there for a long time. But then he comes back to this region and we get another picture of these churches. So we know that these churches are lasting. God has continued the work in that place. So let me make a quick summary. What was Paul's mission? What was he trying to accomplish? It was three things. He was saying, I need to make disciples. I need to appoint leaders. And I need to establish churches. If I could just pause here, and I know it's Mother's Day, but what I so appreciate about what Paul's mission is, is it's a people-centered mission. The first two points are almost exclusively dealing with people, and the third one is bringing these people together in community. It is a people-centered mission. And moms, one reason we appreciate you, and I just want to mark today, your mission is people-centered. And so I just want to encourage you, moms, keep loving keep encouraging, keep investing in. That's, that's part of the significant ministry that God has called you to do today. And there's nothing more important. If Jesus is saying what's most important is investing in people and Paul is demonstrating it here, moms, may you be encouraged. May you be encouraged. Just keep investing and loving and strengthening, encouraging the people in your world. And then we can all sit back today and we can all reflect on the influence and the investment that our moms had in us. Some may be greater than others, but we can all stop and reflect and thank our mom for the investment that she made in us today. So that's what we see Paul's happening. That's what's happened in the region of Galatia. Let me just wrap up the story so you can see him on his way home. Let me just start reading in verse 24. It reads this way. After going through Pisidia, they came into Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Attilia. From Attilia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. So it's about a two-and-a-half-year journey. They've covered 700 miles by land, 500 miles by sea, and now they're back where they started, back in their mother church, and they bring the church together. If some of you grew up in church, you know churches have missions conferences. Well, this is the church in Antioch. This is their first missions conference. It really is their mission accomplished conference. Because Paul comes together and he gets to tell them the stories of what God has done. And wouldn't it have been wonderful to have been in that room, to heard some of these stories of how God has worked in these cities, how there's the disciples are made. He would have told them of the elders and he would have told them of the churches that are being established. And just if I could say one thing here, again, on the clarity. I so appreciate Paul's clarity. This is missions. 
Paul is our first and model missionary. And I so appreciate when we come to Paul's definition of missions and what a missionary is, he is giving us a very specific criteria for what missions is. If you're hearing some of what's going on in North America and some of what's going on in the world today as we're talking about missions, this phrase is emerging. It's this phrase, if everything is missions, then nothing is mission. If everything is mission, nothing is missions. And in some ways, the definition of missions has so broadened that we've forgotten what it is. And I love, as we read in Scripture, that Paul is absolutely crystal clear on what missions is and what a missionary is. Someone who goes, proclaims the gospel, makes disciples, appoints leaders, establishes churches, and moves on. And this is desperately needed today. I marked earlier in this series... There are over 2 billion people in the world today that if nothing changes will live their entire lives and die and never hear the word name of Jesus Christ. So we desperately need this. There are now 2 billion people in this world who have never had this opportunity. And so as we think of what missions is and what a missionary is, we, oh, may God give us grace to continue to, to live out what Paul is doing here. John Piper said it this way as he tried to help us understand what missions is, and you'll see the quote come up on the screens. Here's what John Piper said. Christians care about all suffering, but especially eternal suffering, else they have a defective heart or a flameless hell. I just love how Piper says, you know, all suffering matters around this world, but especially the eternal suffering of people. And oh God, may God give us grace to continue to go and make disciples of all nations. So Harbor, we ask ourselves the question. First, I want to ask it for us as a group, and then I want to ask it personally. Are we accomplishing the mission? Are we, if this is the mission, are we seeing the work completed? And as I look around Harbor, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful that we can look in different places in different ways and say, Yes, there are disciples being made. There are leaders being raised up, and there are churches being started. I look around, and I'm thankful for God's grace in our midst that we can see a little bit about what that church would have celebrated in their missions conference. We can gather and celebrate the work of God in this way. So my heart is full for God's work among us and his grace in our midst but you know, my heart also longs for more. It's the verse we have over here on our side screen that God would do more than we could ask or imagine. And as I think about what's in our world, 2 billion people in our province, 13 million people in our region, 400,000 people, my heart longs that there would be many more who would hear the good news of Jesus Christ and be transformed by that. So that's my harbor assessment. But can I also ask you for a personal assessment today on these two ideas? And I just have two questions that then sort of come together, pull together into one final question. Here would be my first question as I think about Paul in not a long time having leaders ready who are able to take spiritual responsibility for others. Here would be my first question. Are you strong enough to make a spiritual difference in someone else's life? Sort of an internal evaluation. Are you strong enough to make a spiritual difference in someone else's life? And sometimes when we hear that question, our initial pushback can be, I need more time. 
you know, I need more time to grow and to learn and to develop. And, and what we are deeply challenged by in this story is that these, this was less than two years. And there were those that were ready to make a spiritual difference in others' lives. In fact, they were ready at the elder level. And I'm not asking you to be at that level even. I'm just saying, are you at a point where your faith is strong enough to make a difference in someone else's life? And look at the resources and the opportunities we have compared to what we see there in this first church. They had nothing other than the Old Testament, probably just on scrolls. And so you think of the resources and the opportunities and the time we have. And so I think there's a deep challenge here for us. That if you would say, you know, I'm not ready, I'm not strong enough to yet make a difference in someone else's spiritual life, there should be a challenge in here to say, you know, I want to be ready. I want to grow in my faith. I want to be strengthened, and I want to be living out and obeying and practicing what I know God has said to do. I want to get my roots deep down. I want to be living it out. And if you're in that category, watching right now, and you're feeling like, you know, I'm just not ready. I'm at that, that point. Here's where I would invite you to go first. And I, hopefully you've heard my word of challenge, but let me also ask you to go here first. Paul shows up in these cities. They've never heard the good news of Jesus. And these people's lives are changed because they come to put their trust in Christ. They hear that there's a living God and they hear that they've turned their back on him, they've sinned and they've gone their own way, but yet God through Christ has provided a way that they can have relationship with God through the cross. It's that message that changes them. They put their trust in Christ and they feel his forgiveness. They feel his love. They feel his hope. They feel him changing on the inside and they know the promise that they have of eternity with him. And so today, if you're just not that motivated to say, I, I just, uh, you know, this doesn't really inspire me, uh, I'm not that interested, then return back to the gospel. Here would be the question I'd ask you. What did they see in these four cities that you have missed in the gospel? Because they heard it and were willing to give everything to follow Jesus. Despite great persecution, despite, despite social ostracization, they said, Jesus is greater than anything. And that would be my prayer for you today. May you just say, God, may you help me see what these people saw some 2,000 years ago. And may you grow in my heart a greater love and desire to follow after you. That's the first question. And I love how we get to see a little bit of this played out around Harbor when we do our baptisms. Uh, I so appreciated Megan's baptism last Sunday, just the way she told her story of growing up at Harbor and all the different ways and all the different places she was influenced. And so just was so blessed by Megan's story. But what I also was so blessed by was the people that were in the tank with her. And, you know, we've, we've sort of changed over the last years the way we do baptisms at Harbor. The elders are still presiding over every baptism. Us as leaders, we're doing that. But the ones performing the baptisms are some of the ones that have had the greatest spiritual impact on the person wanting to get baptized. And so I have loved watching our baptisms and loved looking in on seeing the people who are doing the baptisms knowing that they have made a spiritual difference on that person there. And what has been even more encouraging over the years now at Harbor is we're seeing people that we have baptized, now they've baptized someone else. It's like second generation. It's like grandchildren. And we're trusting that that would continue on. Wouldn't that be wonderful that all of us 
that all of us would be able to baptize individuals, that we would each say, oh God, would you use me in that way? And that's my second question. My first question was, are you strong enough to make a spiritual difference in someone else's life? But my second question is this, have you made one disciple? Have you made a disciple? And I think as we think of Paul's clarity on mission, he's just doing what Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus will look at us one day and say, have you made a disciple? Francis Chan, and if you know Francis Chan, he's sort of got an in-your-face style, but here's how he says this point. He says, can we really come before God and say, I didn't make one disciple? Be honest, we are ditching our responsibility. And I appreciate the way he challenges us in that and reminds us that one day we will stand before God and we want to be able to say, we want him to say, well done, good and faithful servant, you have completed the mission that I gave you to make one disciple. And so my challenge today is that would you continue to learn and grow and obey Jesus and be strengthened in your faith, but would you also be making a disciple? It's not either or, it's both and happening at the same time. And so here's the question that I have that brings it all together. It's simply this, how far will you go for us to make one disciple? How far will you go for us to make one disciple. And I know the grammar sort of switches from singular to plural there, but the first half is meant to imply our personal commitment to disciple-making, our personal commitment to grow and be strengthened in our faith, and our personal commitment to actually be the one that reaches out, that loves, that strengthens and encourages another believer. But then the second part, and this is a good reminder, it doesn't all depend on me. In fact, God doesn't ask us to do more than we are. He doesn't expect us to be someone we're not, and we join together. So the question is, how far will you go for us to make one disciple? And so without any lessening the personal responsibility on this, let me also mark last week when Megan got baptized. You know, when she got baptized and talked about all the different ministries at Harbor, she didn't say this, but but here's what she could have said. And the bathrooms were always clean, And the grounds always looked nice. And the kitchen was always stocked. And the utility bills were all paid. And so we mark that together we are making disciples. It's Yes, it's individually we are doing it. But it's also all of our combined collective energy. And so as you saw that baptism last week and you've served in any area at Harbor, I hope your heart is full. You're saying, oh yeah, we together We together were a part of this work in someone's life. Think of Paul and Barnabas returning to Antioch. And that whole church would have celebrated. Look how God has used us. Yes, two were sent, but others stayed. And it was a combined effort. And they celebrated it together, how God has used them. So there's the individual side here. But there's also the corporate side as we each use our gifts and we work together. One last thing, one last thing as we think about this is I just want to go back to the verse as you would just ponder how Paul ended this. And and as we sort of hear the challenge of this, to take some responsibility, how far will I go? What am I willing to commit? But if we go back to the verse, here's how Paul ends it. You'll see it on the screens. Here's what it says. All that God had done through them and how he had opened a door to faith with the Gentiles. 
And this is where we need to end. Paul gets back home and he says, we didn't do this. This was all the work of God. This was all the work of God. And that's what gives us confidence and encouragement as we move forward, both as individuals and as a church. God, may you help me be faithful. May you help me count the cost. May you help me follow you. May you help me go deep in the word. But God, ultimately, Lord, if you're going to use me to, to touch anyone else's life, this is all the work of you. And God, may you work through me. And that just helps us rest and trust in Christ in these things. And then how does Paul describe it? What did God do? He opened doors. You see, it was God who opened the doors. So maybe you're watching right now, and God opened a door for you this last week. Or God opened a door for you this last month. Then, then as you're thinking of that, and you know the opportunity you have, you sort of know where God is calling you. May you go through that door. Maybe for others of you, God haven't opened a door. Well, keep going. Keep strengthening. Keep growing and putting your roots down deeper in your faith. And if God opens the door this week, may you be bold. May you follow him. May you trust in him. And ultimately, as we do that, we see what we see in this passage, the only God work of God in our midst. Harbor, may we see that individually. May we make disciples. We may, may we raise up leaders. And may we see more churches established for the glory of God. May we be able to look back and say, God has done a work among us. Let me pray for us today. God, we thank you, Lord, for this story. God, it's what you do. It's amazing. And God, as we think of our world, God, we long and we just pray generally, Lord, that there would be many places, many places where you would raise up laborers who would go, who would share your news, Lord, and we would see uh, your gospel go forward amongst the two billion that have not yet heard the name of Jesus. And God, may you help us, Lord, as a church in our region, in our, in our province, in our country to live out the same. And we pray this in the name of Christ. So Harbor, I'm hoping in three weeks my uh, kitchen project will be renovated and it will be done and it will be mission accomplished. But I'm also hoping us as churches, we move forward. We know our mission. Make disciples. Make disciples. Harbor, let's go and do that this week. Harbor, we are sent.